Welcome to It's a Question of Balance with Ruth Copland. Featuring stimulating in-depth interviews with special guests from all areas of the arts. And now, here's your host for It's a Question of Balance, Ruth Copland. show where we balance the intellectual with the creative, exploring whether we have more in common than divides us through thought-provoking conversations. For the topic hour, I go out and about and talk to people on the street about a wide variety of different subjects that affect us all, both locally and globally. And for this, the Arts Hour, I interview local, national and international guests from all areas of the arts. The show combines a debate topic with an arts interview because I feel discussion and creativity are two of the most vital ways we engage with the world. This week, my special guest from the arts is multimedia artist and award-winning author Erin Morgenstern. Raised in Massachusetts, Erin graduated from Smith College with a degree in theatre and studio art. And in addition to her writing, she paints mainly in acrylics and has designed and painted a black and white tarot deck called The Phantom Wise. Her debut novel, The Night Circus, a fantastical novel that follows the impossible love of two magicians, sold three million copies and has been translated into 37 languages. It spent seven weeks on the New York Times bestseller list and was recognized with the 2012 Alex Award, given by the Young Adult Library Services Association, as well as the 2012 Locus Award for first novel. It has also been optioned for film. Erin is known for her highly imaginative world-building, and the enchanting domain of the night circus has inspired devoted fans the world over. They have been eagerly anticipating Erin's next book, and this is now materialising in the form of The Starless Sea, which Publishers Weekly describes as a love letter to bibliophiles, dreamlike and uncanny, grounded in deeply felt emotion, and absolutely thrilling. If you're listening in the Santa Cruz area, Erin Morgenstern is going to be here on November 12th for a special Bookshop Santa Cruz Literary Masquerade. So if you enjoy my interview with Erin, you have a great opportunity to see her in person, get your book signed and have some masquerade fun. More information at bookshopsantacruz.com. Well, right now, Erin is here with us. Welcome to the show, Erin. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm wondering if you can remember, your your life is obviously full of creativity, (laughs) but whether you can remember the first time that art of any kind had a deep effect on you beyond just entertainment, whether it was a book or a picture, music or or some other kind of art. Well, I was always a reader as a child, probably unsurprising. Um, (laughs) and And I actually wrote one of my earliest art memories into the starless sea the the main character reads in his closet as a child like and Uh, that's something I would do I would take my books into my closet with my blanket and my pillow and close myself away with the story because it would allow me to become more immersed in it right sort of my my very oldest memory of of interacting with a a piece of art that way that I really wanted to, to lose myself in it Yes, yeah. Oh, that's cool. Did you grow up in a creative environment, would you say, or did you find art for yourself? 
I was um, I was the art kid. You know how you have like the I was never the math kid. Um, right. And yeah. <laughs> I, I don't have the math brain. I still don't. And art was always the class that I was good at. Like, um, and I could t- like I could tell that this was something that like it wasn't a struggle for me the way different subjects, especially like way back in elementary school when you're first sort of learning things. Right. Art was the art was my comfort zone. Um, right. Yeah. And uh, art and books were sort of my my jam. Where I um, once we got into to sort of more mathy sciencey things, then I was a little lost and I was never. I think I failed algebra in when I was in eighth grade. Um, but that was my sort of aptitude for it. It was present early, and I don't really. I I have a terrible memory actually. I remember things <laughs> in the vague impressions, and um, but I remember art class. And I remember my library and that sort of thing being where I, I felt most comfortable. Right. So it sounds like you came across those sort of discoveries more in the school environment than, than at home or whatever. You know, you, you were introduced to those subjects at school and they really kind of grabbed you. Yes, I always liked that just having art supplies. I think I, I was allowed more art supplies at school. <laughs> <laughs> Because it was easier to clean up all of that stuff. I was going to say, yeah, it's pretty messy, isn't it? Art supplies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, you studied, as I mentioned, for a degree in, in theatre and, and studio art, I believe. And what attracted you to those areas first, do you think, you know, rather than writing to start with? I never thought I was a good writer. And it was, um, I wrote a little bit both in high school and college, but I would never finish things. And that's, I would do that thing where I would write a page and then hate it. And mm. I would stop writing. And that's not the way to write. But for, mm. um, so I got into theater, probably because that's sort of where the artsy kids drifted into a drama club direction when right. I was in high school. And it was a like minded peers and I liked the collaborative storytelling mm, of it. Yeah. I liked how many different things there were to do in service of the single whole of a theater production. And um, so when I was looking for something to major in, when I went to college, it seemed the obvious thing to do. But then after I got my degree, I realized I'd never really picked the one theater thing that I wanted to pursue. I did a little bit of everything. I acted a little bit, I directed, I studied lighting design, and I kind of lacking that real drive to pursue one over the other, I kind of let the theater thing go, which was bad timing to get a degree in something and then decide you didn't really want to do it anymore. (laughs) Um, But then it's all come in very handy with writing, because once I started really sitting down and writing and learning to finish things, I get to do all those things. I get to direct a scene. I get to act all the roles. I get to decide how how each scene is lit. Um, so it's been it's it worked out well in the yeah. end. Yeah. So is that how you sort of think about your story? It's from that kind of more dramatic perspective, sort of very visually in your yes, mind. I'm a, I'm yeah. a visual person. I've talked to a couple of writers who said they like think in sentences, and that's not me at all. I mm. I think in pictures. I'll sometimes hear dialogue in my head, but I I think in visuals and and spaces. I have a space in my head that I have down to. I could touch the upholstery on the furniture. I I have it so detailed in my head, and the writing process for me is so much about 
trying to take those images and that space in my head and translate it into the right words to put on the page so that the reader can conjure a similar space in their head. Right. Yes. Yeah. I'm very interested in different kinds of minds and um, my sons have dyslexia and 20% of people have dyslexia and that Mm -hmm. is a very visual way of thinking. And I I remember reading a, a book about um, dyslexia, where they were sort of saying how, you know, people with that real visual thinking ability, you know, if you ask them to imagine like a piece of cake, they can walk around it. Do you know what I mean? They can see mm-hmm. every bit of the cake. But apparently, not everyone can do that. You know, and I was yeah. like, oh, that's you, interesting because you tend to you think how you that. think is how everyone thinks. Yeah, you said that, and there was a perfect slice of carrot cake completely down to the piped little frosting <laughs> carrot on it in my head as soon as you said that. Yeah, it, it is. It is interesting to then assign words to those images isn't it it is a mm-hmm. definitely a different process whereas what you're saying with writers who are perhaps more word driven they probably think of a word and then see the image that is associated with the word rather than the other way around yeah, yeah. I have to search for things a lot uh, it will take me a while to get a description exactly how I want it I I use thesaurus.com all the time because I'll be like it's a word like this but not that word Right. So I'll look yeah. it up in the thesaurus to see if I can find the one that I can't quite come up with in my head. Yeah. It's interesting, though, isn't it? The nuance of language that there are mm-hmm. so many different words that have these very slight different meanings and that they're available for us, you know, to choose. Yes. It's intimidating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know thesaurus.com is really good. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you come to start writing then you know you you said that you weren't good at finishing things and I I think that's a common thing isn't it with early writing to just be very super critical you know and then so it it sort of paralyzes you I think there's something about a finished book as opposed to a different sort of art form like like it looks so pristine and perfect and typeset where if you go to see a piece of theater you know it went through rehearsals and a process. If you see a, like a painting, you know there was probably a, a sketched version of it before there was a painting. You, there, I think it's a little more accessible to imagine the the process behind it. Whereas a book looks so like completely exquisite and perfect, and and I think it's harder to imagine when you haven't gone through the process how messy it can be to get to that finished book. Because I used to think as a reader. I would think a writer would go through and you wrote the book and maybe you went back and fixed some commas or changed a word here and there. And that was just that you didn't really, I don't think unless you either like listen to a lot of writers talking about process or, or you you go through it yourself, realize that you throw entire chapters away or you rework like so much of it. And it's a messier process than it seems. And the thing that got me from that, writing a page and then hating it stage um, was something called National Novel Writing Month. Right. It's um, it's an online challenge uh, created in, I think, 2001 or 2002 um, by a guy named Chris Beatty, and he um, challenged himself and his friends to write 50,000 words in 30 days as, like, that was the novel writing month. And right. And it caught on, and by a few years in, there were thousands of people doing it, and now I, I – can't even imagine how many people are doing it. It's international now. People do it um, all over the place. But I started in, I want to say 2004 or 2005, um, because I knew other people who were doing it. And I thought, oh, that might be good for me. 
um, just to try to get words on paper. And it turned out to be the perfect thing. I, I, if I remember correctly, I didn't manage the 50,000 words the first year I tried it. Right. But it's a I lot in, a, it, in 30 it days. Is. Gosh. It's, yeah. it's, I think it's 1,600 something words a day. Yeah. which sounds much better than, than the 50,000 in the month. But yeah. it, it kind of cured me of that perfectionism because mm. it allowed me to write a page and then I didn't have time to hate it because I had many more <laughs> right. pages to write. Yeah. And, yeah. and when I had that many pages, I could look back and of course I hated most of it, but there were bits and pieces that weren't bad. Right. And yeah. and it also allowed me just to kind of practice and kind of figure out like the sort of thing I wanted to write and how I wanted to write it. And that's where the Night Circus started evolving from. I think maybe like the fourth or fifth year I did it, I got really bored with what I was writing. And out of desperation for something interesting to happen, I sent my characters to a circus. Mm. And the circus was immediately way more interesting <laughs> than anything else I've been writing. That was like it was this sort of vaguely Edward Gorey inspired thing with like guys in fur coats being mysterious and doing very little else. So the circus was much better. And then I spent the next two years kind of exploring, oh, just as National Novel Writing Month, just writing in November, um, writing just stuff about the circus. Right. And eventually managed to morph that into a finished book, but it was a very long involved, messy, messy process. Yeah. So um, you're writing like one month a year. What's what stops you writing? You know, keep going, and then what eventually, you know, made you keep going? I think when I had all of this stuff on the circus, I had something that I thought maybe I could make book shapes, mm. and that's when I started so kind of tinkering more yeah. with it, and I knew I had enough to work with, and that's when I went into thinking about, oh, how does one publish a book? Because I had no idea. Right. I, I wasn't, yeah. I didn't set up to pursue publishing. I didn't, I, I wasn't really like thinking of it as something to do something with, but then I had it. So I thought I might as well try. And then I found all these things that said, don't write in present tense and never, ever write in second person. And I thought, oh, but I already did all that. So yeah, <laughs> I might as well see what happens anyway. Um, and then I just started sending it to literary agents and it was a mess. It was a mess at that time. It had no plot. But I I lucked into um, agents who saw some potential in it, and I got feedback, and I went and rewrote and then rewrote some more for over a year. And then eventually I signed with my current agent, and then all of a sudden it was a book. Right. And I yeah. and it was all very overwhelming because it was that sort of experience that everything everyone says doesn't happen to debut authors happened to me. Right. That yeah. It was this kind of unexpected success. And I thought it was a weird black and white circus book that maybe if it got published, a few weird people might like. And that was going to be <laughs> enough for me. So this was all a delightful surprise. Yeah, I was going to ask you, I mean, as you've alluded to, the kind of success the Night Circus has enjoyed is the kind dreamt of, you know, by aspiring authors. I'm wondering how that affected you, you know, sort of on a personal level. It is equal parts delightful and frightening. Right. It's, 
it's so wonderful because you couldn't ask for more than something that I wrote that feels very personal and then how other people read and respond to so enthusiastically. It's wonderful. And at the same time, it, it's so big and it makes it feel like it's so much more than me. And it's a little overwhelming and intimidating. Yeah. And then of course it got even worse when, as soon as it came out, people went into when's your next book coming out. Oh God. Yeah. (laughs) And I was just like, but this one took me years. Why do you think that this is going to be a second one? (laughs) Yeah. That's funny. Well, if you just joined us, you're listening to It's a Question of Balance with me, Ruth Copland, and my special guest this week, award-winning author Erin Morgan-Stern. And just to remind you, if you're listening in the Santa Cruz area, Erin is going to be here on November 12th for a special bookshop, Santa Cruz Literary Masquerade, where you can meet Erin and get your book signed and have some masquerade fun. So more information at bookshopsantacruz.com. We're going to break now, but we'll be back after these messages. like the music from It's a Question of Balance with Ruth Copland? Have you ever wondered what the full songs sound like? Now you can find out by listening to the new EP, It's a Question of Balance Music, available from iTunes, Amazon, and It's a Question of Balance.com. It's a question of balance music. Download individual tracks or the whole EP from iTunes, Amazon, or it's a question of balance.com. Hi, I'm Casey, and I'm the second generation owner of Bookshop Santa Cruz. We pride ourselves on being Santa Cruz's community bookstore. We feature an extensive selection of new and used books, children's books and toys, gifts, cards, magazines, and games. Our knowledgeable booksellers can help you find just the right book or gift. We hope you can join us for our author events each week featuring best-selling authors and books of local interest. And if you can't get downtown, our website has over 3.2 million titles which ship directly to your home. We even have experts on site to help you publish your own book or family history. Come visit us downtown or at our website, bookshopsantacruz.com. Bookshop Santa Cruz has been an independent bookseller for over half a century in the community we love. Visit Bookshop Santa Cruz downtown. We love our customers and the books that make it all possible. Bookshop Santa Cruz, online and in downtown Santa Cruz.
Welcome back. You're listening to Question and Balance with me, Ruth Copland, and my special guest, award-winning author, Erin Morgenstern. So your latest book is The Starless Sea. Before we talk about it, could you give listeners an idea of the story without giving too much away? Ah, I'm so bad at this. It's a hard thing <laughs> to explain. I, do, I don't have my elevator pitch at all. I'm working on it by the end of book tour. I it is a complicated, it is a but complicated it is. book. It's a yes. hard book. Yes. I, I think the easiest way to explain it is I thought I was writing a book about books and it turned out I was writing a book about stories, but it is very much a book of books within the book and stories within the story. And it's a very layered narrative, but at the core of the narrative is the story of a character named Zachary Ezra Rollins, who, when he was about 11 years old, found a magic painted door and he didn't open it. And he has (laughs) thought about that door many times since. And uh, many years later, when he's a grad student studying video game design in Vermont, he, that story of that magic door catches up with him. That's a fairly fairly good way to to describe it, and um, there there is um, this kind of underground world, we'll call it, that that's full of books in in different forms. And I understand you asked for the book trailer of the Starless Sea to be changed so that it didn't refer to it as a library, even though it's full of books. What, what was the difference in your mind, you know, from a from a library for listeners who are yet to read the book? <laughs> It's funny because it is, it's an underground like labyrinth full of books and stories. And I was always a little averse to calling it a library, even though the easiest way to express it is it's an underground library. Um, But I was thinking about it when people kept saying it, I was like, why does this bother me? And then it finally hit me that it doesn't have librarians. Right. So it doesn't feel like a library to me because uh, a space with that many books and no librarians doesn't really feel like a library. It's like you want that the people to be able to guide you through and help you find things. And this is more of a leave you to your own devices sort of space. Yeah, that's true. Because it's kind of like almost like a, I don't know, I was thinking of like a sweet shop in England. You know, if you if you went to like mm. a land of sweets, that would be very different to kind of going to a sweet shop where there's a, a, a store owner who's like, you know, giving you permission to you know, have a suite or not or whatever. I mean, it's kind of a freer environment, isn't it? That's, um, yes, it's a little more self-directed, I think. Yes, yeah. You've said at its heart, The Starless Sea is about stories, a book about books. And Sweet Sorrows is, is one of the books within the book. And in it, you describe, as we're talking about, the underground world of stories written down in all kinds of physical forms, saying... There are stories wrapped in silk, so their pages do not fall to dust, and stories that have already succumbed, fragments collected and kept in urns. And I love this idea of even the dust of stories being valued, of them having an energetic value, if you like, like the kind of ashes or bones of of saints or something, you know, they're being kept Mm. in urns. And it made me wonder where you think the essence of a story is held and, and whether that's something you're exploring in the Starless Sea. I think it is something I'm exploring. And I think that's when I made that transition to when I started it, I thought it was a book about books and then I, it expanded into a book about stories because I started thinking about, well, what's the difference and what's a story and getting into fairy tales and myths and oral traditions and where does that story live 
and which version is real and what is real when we're talking about a story like that. And I, I liked that idea of not really having the answers to those questions. Right. Yeah. But kind of find, like developing the space as some place that was exploring all those, that was cataloging story in any and all form. Right. And of course, most of the physical things are books, but there's also all sorts of other stories in there as well. Yes, yeah. Natasha Pulley in The Guardian writes, the Starla Sea rejects older stories. It makes its own. Its magic is based in the New York Public Library, in glittering hotels, and the beautiful blatant kitsch of a professional fortune teller's house. Rather than a traditional fantasy novel, this is an artificial myth in its own right, soldered together from the girders of skyscrapers, a myth from and for the U.S., rather than inherited from older nations. Like any myth, it refuses to decode its own symbols. I'm wondering whether you agree with that. I mean, you just alluded to the fact that you like questions that aren't necessarily answered. So I, I wondered if you think that's fair, saying it, it refuses to decode its own symbols. And no, I think it's absolutely fair. Um, I I like posing the questions more than I like finding the answers to it. And there's a bit... Um, there's a lot of symbols in the book, and one of the things is symbols for are for interpretation and not definition. And I like leaving I like leaving a lot up to the reader, mm. and I like and I like that that feeling of a story that can mean something personal to each person because of their individual experience, because of the way they approach it, because of what this symbol means to them, and. I think in that idea of not pulling from specific myths and kind of creating my own, I was absolutely doing that. And I was conscious of it too. There's no, there's an underlying mythology in the, the whole book. And I didn't want it to feel like I was just doing, oh, this is Greek mythology or, oh, this is Egyptian or, oh, this is a combination mm -hmm. thereof. I, I wanted it to feel like it was its own thing that at the same time felt like it could have been a different version of any of those myths. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So what are you, if you're leaving a lot of that open for readers, what are you hoping they'll take away from the Starless Sea? Oh, I don't think I know. I think it's almost like I like the idea that I wrote it and I put it there and each reader can come and take whatever they want from it. It is a very layered book. There's something there. Like I, I imagine and I've heard from early readers already, different parts of it are going to resonate with different readers. Right. Yeah. And I don't, I don't like, I have a hard time talking about it sometimes because I, I just want someone to read it. It's like, I'd, I'd rather hand it yeah. to someone and just wander away and let them have the experience they're going to have yeah. on their own. But I do think that I, I'd like that idea that, it's going to make people think about what a story is or think about their relationship to story or what like the arc of a story is and how we kind of apply that to our own lives. There's a couple of times that I talk about this because it's something I think about a lot where mm -hmm. because of books and television and movies, I think sometimes you expect everyday life to have the rhythm of a story and it doesn't mm -hmm. because you have to, live through all the in-betweens and the, the things that would be edited out 
for time if you were trying to condense it into something that felt more like a narrative. Right. Yeah. And I remember like thinking when I was younger, trying to figure out what was bothering me about kind of thinking in, in story and thinking in narrative and then everyday life. And I think it's that it's like, you kind of want things to feel more story shaped than they do sometimes, I think. Right. Yeah. Well, this is kind of um, interesting because I, I was going to ask you in the, in the starless sea, you say of the main character, one of the main characters, Zachary, he has been reading or rereading a great many children's books because the stories mm-hmm. seem more story-like. And I'm not sure of the figure for children's books, but I know, I think it's about over 70% of those who read young adult novels are, are over 18. And there's sort of slightly condescending and dismissive arguments for that, that, you know, people are looking for a simple read or they're harking back to their youth. You know, perhaps that was in your character Zachary's mind when he says reading children's books is making him mildly concerned this might be a symptom of an impending quarter life crisis. (laughs) And your novels are not aimed specifically at young people, although they have been recommended for them as well as as, um, adult readers, but they obviously are very story-like to use Zachary's phrase. And so, I mean, is that what appeals to you about writing books that are story-like? Is that is because you know we kind of uh, aspire for our lives to be more like that, or is there another reason you you like writing in that way? I think there's a, it's a lot of reasons. I like I like things that feel like those old stories. I like things that feel like fairy tales. I like mm. things that feel like an adventure or a romance or both at the same time. And I think there's something about um, both the children's books and the younger audience that there's a freedom there mm. to explore things that don't feel as everyday. Like I, mm, when I yeah. read, I want to read something that takes me somewhere else that gives me an experience that I can't have on a daily basis. Like yeah. I, um, I feel like you can do so much on a page. You have an endless budget. You can do more than a film. You, you, yeah. you can push those boundaries and those spaces so far and that's what I like about creating my own stories and my own narrative. Like I could write something uh, about a 41-year-old like, writer who lives in <laughs> the woods and writes all day and have it be this sort of meta, very realistic thing, but that's not fun mm. for me. No. Um, I've, I've read a lot of like sad college professor books and it's like, it's, there, some of them are very good, but it's not what I want to explore. And I think there's something that when you talk about what feels more like a story, and when I say that, I'm thinking in terms of what feels older, what yeah. feels like a classic story, what more feels timeless. like a myth. Yeah. Yes. And that's and one of the things I wanted to do with, with The Starless Sea was have something that felt old and new at the same time. Mm. So that's where it gets into it's a about fairy tale and myth, but it's also about video games. Oh, and video games, yeah, yeah. The Starless Sea is coming out eight years after The Night Circus, and I've interviewed Marcus Zusak, author of the phenomenally successful Mm -hmm. The Book Thief, and he took 13 years before his second novel, Bridge of Clay, came out, and and he said that Bridge of Clay was a book that he had to fight for in, in terms of his writing process and I'm I'm wondering did you find yourself up against any challenges uh, that were different in writing the solace than than the night circus I think in some ways it was the same and in some ways it was different and the biggest difference was that people were waiting for this one 
Oh, I, yeah. cool. I got to like <laughs> the night circus in a bubble and no one was waiting for it because no one knew it existed. And people had an idea of Aaron Morgenstern's next book before it was even a book. And so that part was hard. And I kind of had to try to artificially recreate a bubble to write within. And I think the thing that was similar was my writing process has not gotten any less messy. I wrote and wrote and wrote and threw away large swaths of text. And I kept kind of searching for what the book was and what I wanted to write. And one of the reasons it ended up being a book about storytelling was that I kept asking myself when I was getting very stressed and overwhelmed about it, why am I doing this? Right. I, yeah. Why am why do I want to write another book at all? And so that's when I started thinking about stories and storytelling and, and thinking about what like what that whole process is and why we tell stories and um and that's sort of when it started coming together a little more. Yeah, cuz I was going to say I mean I mean writing any book is a long-term endeavor and I think that's where writing a, a novels or longer books I think is different to different other forms of art because it's a very concentrated but very long engagement with your piece of art you know if you think about painting or acting or whatever you you dip in and out you know in in some ways it's shorter engagement but to hold a a book in your mind for a long time and eight years is a is a a long time you know to hold a piece of art in mind I I guess you know you really have got to be very interested in what you're writing about (laughs) to keep going yeah I it is it's, it's weird for me more now that people are getting to visit a place that lives in my head for so long right. and meet characters that I've known for years. And it, it's, I, I think it's one of those things I, go, I think about a lot is that um, I think people attribute it to Da Vinci that art is never finished, only abandoned. Right. So yes, I like in quote, some ways yeah. I, I feel like I could have kept writing it forever yeah, but yeah. my editor said it was done, so I believed her, and and then um, I felt okay letting it go, and that's sort of when I knew, like it was actually ready to go out into the world because I, I felt like I was prepared because it was like I lived and breathed it for yeah. years. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned that um, about gaming, and I understand you got into gaming a lot since writing the Night Circus. How do you feel that's affected your storytelling both practically and thematically I, I think it was a great sort of light bulb moment for me with the Starless Sea because I had I had the underground not library I had parts of it in place and then I got more into video games and particularly into these big sprawling open world role-playing games and I was playing a game called Dragon Age Inquisition that I'm a little bit obsessed about and I had that moment of thinking like it's the sort of game where you make choices as a character and your choice affects what happens in the game. Like people can die based on what you do. Like you miss entire bits of narrative and you choose one path over the other. And that sort of butterfly effect narrative process, I find structurally fascinating as a writer. And while I was thinking about it, 
I realized how well it worked with everything I was working on already and how much it felt like that idea of fairy tale retellings or versions of myths. Like you can have mm. different versions of the same story that the details will vary, but the overarching story is still the story of the game. And that's when I had that realization that, oh, I have a grad student main character already. And I was thinking he was probably an English major. Mm. And then, I, no, you can probably get advanced degrees in, in game study now. <laughs> so that that opened up a whole other area for me. And it is one of those things that I like. Um, I have trouble. I've, it's very sad, but I have trouble reading when I'm writing just because I can't look at words all day, every day, and then stop and look at more words. Right. So yeah. I like I like absorbing story in different mediums, especially mm. when I'm working. Like I'll I'll watch more TV, I'll watch more movies, I will I'll read graphic novels. And one of the things I really got into it just in the last five years, I'd say, was I played many more video games. Mm. And there are very interesting narrative things going on in games. And it's some, some of the most fascinating storytelling I've seen in the last few years has been in video game format. Wow, that's interesting. Because I think people who are not gamers, you know, just sort of think of, uh, you know, the classic kind of shooter game. Yeah, <laughs> I, think, I know. I, I was one of those people, like, every every video game was Halo, as far as I knew. And it's not. There's so many. There's as many genres of video game as there are books. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, if you just joined us, you're listening to It's a Question of Balance with me, Ruth Copland, and my special guest, award-winning author Erin Morgan-Stern. We're going to a break now, but we'll be back after these messages. Buongiorno, we are Luca and Giovanni from Bellagio. We bring to Pleasure Point Santa Cruz the first authentic Italian gelato and the traditional panini. Using family recipes from the old world, we offer the real taste of Italy. We use organic and locally sourced ingredients to create a healthy and delicious treat that will put a smile on your face. Gourmet panini, the real Italian gelato, fresh juices and more just a block from the ocean. Come and visit us. You will feel like you are in Italia. Visit Bellagio at 743 41st Avenue in Santa Cruz. That's 743 41st Avenue. And follow Bellagio Santa Cruz on Instagram. imagine living without stress, anxiety, or fear? And can you imagine a life filled with harmony and inner peace? Is that even possible? The Ananda Yoga and Meditation Center in Scotts Valley offers simple tools to help you become more effective at work and more centered in the face of life's challenges. At Ananda, we offer yoga classes for everybody, inspiring workshops, devotional chanting, 
and Sunday services based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. Our teachers and therapists are highly trained professionals who work together to inspire a healthier you. And your first Ananda Yoga class is always free. Visit us at anandascottsvalley.org or call 338-YOGA. That's anandascottsvalley.org or 338-YOGA. Question of Balance with me, Ruth Copland, and my special guest, Erin Morgenstern. And I just wanted to remind you again, if you're listening in the Santa Cruz area, that Erin is going to be here on November the 12th for a special Bookshop Santa Cruz Literary Masquerade. So if you're enjoying the interview with her, you have a great opportunity to see her in person, get your book signed, and also have some masquerade fun. So you can go to bookshopsantacruz.com to find out more information there. One of uh, your characters in, in your new book, The Starless Sea, Aaron, says, everyone is part of a story. What they want is to be part of something worth recording. It's that fear of mortality. I was here and I mattered mindset. I'm wondering what resonance there might be for you with that in your own life. <laughs> oh, hmm. I think I think it's true. I think that talking about wanting life to feel more like a story, like feeling like you want to do something that is worthy of recording, that's worthy of being noted. Um, I think a lot of people have that. And I think it's, it's the, I think it's probably exacerbated by the sort of um, attention economy you have with modern life and tech and just, and I love the, I think, just having the ability to kind of do some of that yourself is lovely. Like I like Instagram. Like I think it's nice to be able to record and share more everyday experience Mm. because, and then of course you get the same, the flip side of it where so many people will curate or over curate that everyday experience. So then you have then a different, like an artificial version of what's an everyday. And there's so many Mm. tools that allow us, to express and record and kind of create a different way that you record a modern story. And I think that everyone wants to make a mark of some sort. I, I, I think it's kind of, it might be like just a deeply human sort of thing where you just want mm. someone to pay attention to you and, and to do something worth that attention. Um, I think I have a little too much attention, actually. I would have been fine <laughs> with, with slightly less. Yeah. But at the yeah. same time, I understand the focus. I like to joke, I, I'm a little bit into astrology, and I'm, mm. I have, um, my sun sign is Cancer, which is very, it's the moody moon side, sign, mm. introvert, shy, and I'm super shy. But then I have five planets other than my son in Leo, which is mm. the look at me sign. Yeah. So I, I always joke that I have this deep need to hide away in corners, but then I'll get mad if no one is paying attention to me. <laughs> so 
Yeah. So balancing that is always a kind of a, a very deep emotional juggling act for me. Yeah. Yeah, and I think you mentioned social media. It's it's interesting the difference of doing something um, perhaps that's worthy of being recorded because it's it's meaningful and it matters even in, in a small kind of a arena and just sort of notoriety. It seems like there's mm. been a kind of a bit of a shift towards just sort of look at look at me you know rather than um yeah sort of like an attention grabbing thing that goes on which is perhaps not quite the same as mattering <laughs> at least in I, yeah. I i think i think it's hard when you have this like with modern technology and with so much to pay attention to like i was just thinking the other day there's so many books coming out that i don't i haven't had any time to read and there's so much and but I can only read so many books. Yeah. I can only watch so many TV shows. They're they're gonna hurt me with the amount of TV TV shows that are coming out with every new streaming service. And it's like I can't I can't keep up with all of this. Um, and it's a little overwhelming. And I think it's on one hand, I think it's wonderful that you have so many voices and so many stories. But on the other hand, it makes me as an individual story listener, like. Yeah. It's harder for me to pick and choose. I think what yeah, no, it's you're gonna it's an, give your attention to. Yeah, it's an issue, and I've I've talked about that on the topic part of my show quite a bit. I, I mean, looking at how that affects the arts in terms of mm-hmm. trying to get gain any traction in whatever area, but but also in terms of that overwhelm that you you spoke of, because we feel like we have to try and process all of this you know it's like you will say mm-hmm. you always feel bad that you can't watch all those hundred things that have come out you know and I know it's a new it, world yeah and it seems like if you don't binge watch whatever show just came out on Netflix by the next day it's like there's spoilers all over Twitter and you feel like you're behind yeah yeah it's I think it's a it's certainly something that we're all having to learn to navigate and I think it's quite stressful um, for a lot of it people is. it's supposed to be enjoyable but it's actually can be quite stressful yeah and I had I had a very odd experience where I moved from New York up to um, the Berkshires where I live now we bought the house in the summer of 2016 and I did not have cable or internet for two years mm. and it was a very odd time yeah. to not have cable or internet um, but it did allow me to kind of let go of that need to keep up with everything on many, many levels, whether from news to arts and down, and it allowed me to focus on the book. Yes, yeah, I could totally see that. I'm very interested in um, psychologist Alice Miller, who has written about, she sort of studied various artists in different genres of arts, and she wrote about how art can help people process difficult events, whether these are events they've experienced themselves or, or events they've witnessed. And I'm wondering if you feel art can have a healing effect on, on those making art and those experiencing it. I do. I think I think there's something about sharing experience and getting that experience through an art form and, and through... Um, something that it goes back to a little bit what I was talking to earlier that that interpretation that that a reader or a viewer brings to the art 
um, from a receiving end, I think is is just as important as the creation process, and it feels mm. collaborative and gets into that sort of deep human connection. Like I've had those those sort of profound experiences walking through art museums or finding just the right book that feels the, the, like the right book at the right time. Um, and I think for me as a writer, I can only hope that the books I write find the people who need them when they need them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We hear a lot about the imminent demise of publishing, but unit sales of print books in the USA have risen every year since 2012, reaching 695 million sales in 2018, I believe. It, it seems many people still want to hold an actual book in their hands. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the future of physical books in the digital <laughs> age. <laughs> It's so funny because I remember when the Night Circus came out, which was eight years ago, there were so many articles that said in five years there will be no print books. Mm. I saw it over and over again. And it's funny to be sitting here eight years later. And I actually just this morning got a box of my finished copies from the UK of the Harville Secker mm. edition of the Starless Sea. And they are just stunning objects. They oh. are absolutely beautiful. They have a and a key and a sword printed on the edges of the pages oh, and there the, the amount of thought and design that went into them is incredible and I've noticed that more just book shopping on my own there are really beautiful physical mm. books out there and I I do wonder if it was a little bit of a reaction to that um, all the, the the talk that it was all going to be ebooks all the time to make the physical books more of a covetable object mm, so it was like an artifact yes like I'm the, like there's that the Starless Sea has this the uh, both versions I think that sort of soft touch jacket where it like mm, feels kind yes. of matte yeah. and almost rubbery and it's just like you want to touch it and I love that I'm a tactile person probably unsurprising but like I like the physical feel of a book in my hand and I've tried reading ebooks but the problem that I realized I had the few times that I've tried is I never realized how much I like to flip either forward yeah. to see how many pages I have left before like the end of a chapter or back just to see if I'm remembering something correctly or wanted to reread a little bit. And I like knowing how much more story there is. Yes. Yeah. Like being able to physically feel where I am within the story. So I'm very much a, a, a paper book person. Yeah. Me too. Yes. Yeah. I um. They, they sent me, you know, like the the ebook version of your book, and I was like, well, I want the <laughs> I need yeah. the paper the paper version because I I'm the same, you know, and uh, and the American copy is really lovely too. It does have that soft, you know, feel cover, and then on the actual hardback inside, it does have embossing, which I think is is yes, nice. Whereas a if lot of hasn't taken the jacket off. You should take it off and look at it because it's absolutely yeah. beautiful. Exactly. But I mean, you know, it's not uncommon now for the hardbacks to just have the bare minimum, you know, like mm -hmm. to not have anything on. It's all on the jacket. So when I took the jacket off and I saw that, I was really pleased. I was like, oh, this is so lovely, you know, kind of to have it, it all like that. So, uh, yeah, it's very nice. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk to me, Erin. I really appreciate it. No, thank you. This was lovely. And uh, we're looking forward to seeing you in Santa Cruz. I'm going to go along, so hope to oh, see you in person there. <laughs> I have no idea what I'm going to wear. 
No, I've, I've been thinking about that. in a suitcase, so I'll have to make some decisions. <laughs> yeah, it's very exciting if, if you're listening and you're in Santa Cruz. Um, November the 12th is this literary masquerade event. It's at the DNA Comedy Lab in Santa Cruz, and it starts at 6 o'clock, and you're invited to attend disguising yourself as your favorite literary character or figure to enter the world of the starless scene. It says there'll be dancing and activities plucked from Erin Morgenstern's magical world. So it all sounds like a lot of fun. There's going to be refreshments, and then you also um, get to meet Erin, of course. And if you buy um, a ticket, I would suggest doing it in advance. I'm sure it's going to sell out. Um, you get a book, you get a copy of The Starless Seat, a seat for the talk, a place in the signing line, and access to all the masquerade activities. So more information at Bookshop Santa Cruz, either in the store in downtown Santa Cruz or online at bookshopsantacruz.com. Well, thanks very much, Erin. We'll look forward to seeing what you're going to wear. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for listening. I look forward to being with you again next time.